1: Welcome to New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today's podcast is special, not because this is the 99th episode of my New Books career, but because I get the chance to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Peter H. Wood completing the dissertation version of Black Majority, Negroes in Colonial South Carolina from 1670 through the Stone Rebellion. In this long-ranging interview, I discuss the origin story of Peter's work, what happened at Duke University in the 80s and 90s that opened the door for the likes of Jennifer L. Morgan, Vincent Brown, and the late great Julius Scott to come through the Durham doors and where he sees the field of slavery studies going. Enjoy the conversation, family. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, Dr. Peter Wood. How are you doing today?
0: I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad to hear you.
1: Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And um as we spoke about um before we press record here um such a such a pleasure and a, um and an honor <clears throat> excuse me to have you on the podcast for today um and so we have a lot to get to as my we, preset questions show we do uh, <laughs> so, i'm
0: old dude.
1: i go way back <laughs> yeah we gotta
0: go all the <laughs> we gotta way, go way back way
1: back to, yeah. to, to the early part mm-hmm. so um you know, having spoken with you offline and and read a bit about your your actual uh, bio too um, I'm actually interested really to know how how it all began for you. so um starting out here, how did the civil rights movement of the fifties and the sixties and and really just the overall turbulence of the times during that moment um, in, in this formative time frame for you uh, affect your trajectory as a scholar
0: Well. It, it, uh, I'm, I'm clearly a, a product of that era, which created many different uh, products and many different historians. But I was born in St. Louis in 1943. Um, my dad was a doctor. Um, and so it meant that I sort of came of age during the civil rights movement, um, but I went to a private segregated school in, uh, in, in St. Louis. And, and then when we moved to Baltimore in the mid-50s, it, it was not only segregated by race, but segregated by gender as well. So it was a boys' prep school, basically. So I had a very sheltered version of the movement, if you will. Um, but it touched everybody. And the way it touched me first, probably, and I love to tell this story was through jackie robinson the way it touched thousands of other young baseball loving kids you know i i saw jackie robinson come to st louis when i was in the third grade or something we were sitting behind third base i was with my dad and i hated the brooklyn dodgers they always beat us and uh the guy got on first base and the entire, we were facing the right field bleachers and the right field bleachers started chanting, go, Jackie, go, go, Jackie, go. And I turned to my dad and said, what the heck is going on here? You know, those, those people are rooting for Brooklyn. You know, this is terrible. And he explained to me that It was segregated. I mean, I think it was legally segregated. It was certainly economically segregated. And most of Black St. Louis had turned out to see Jackie Robinson. Um, And lo and behold, the second pitch, he stole second base and the catcher threw it into center field and he's went around to third base and slid in right in front of me. And, and the fans in the bleachers went wild. Um, And it was a, pivotal moment for me, even at that age, because I realized, wow, there's something bigger than baseball. You know, there are there are there, things going on that would make people in St. Louis root for a Brooklyn Dodger. And I got to find out what that is, you know, and that so that planted the question in the In the back of my head, there's this this awareness that there was something bigger going on in the society, and it had to do with race, you know, and that's really about all I knew at that point. Uh, And uh, so so the the movement, you know, was always there in the background for me by by the time I got to college in the early 60s, Again, I was sheltered, I was playing sports, I was the capital lacrosse team, so, you know, nice preppy sport. But my roommate, who was a Jewish guy from um, from Brooklyn, uh, also a big Dodgers fan, <laughs> um, went on on the Freedom Summer, you know? And so I was one step removed all, all the time, you know, but I was, I was thinking about it all the time, Um so it certainly shaped um what i wanted to i knew what i wanted to study but, uh, pretty early even as an undergraduate i was interested in early american history which was very new england centered in those days but yeah, my parents yeah, yeah, were both yeah. from boston i spent summers in maine you know i thought okay new england i like history this is cool i'll I'll study early American history, but I was but I was coming from the mid midwest, you know, I, I had this understanding that geographically, it's not all about New England. And racially, Jackie Robinson had taught me, you know, it's not all about white folks. <laughs> you know, there's there's something else I need to know about. And I really carried that with me even, when I studied in England for two years and then I came back to graduate school um, and and pretty much knowing that I wanted to find a way in which, early American history intersected with African American history and And I'll tell you another another story that was this was pivotal for me. I mean, I don't know if it works this way for everybody, but sometimes the there's gradual, changes going on inside your head, but it gets crystallized in some moment that you never forget. And the moment for me in, I started graduate school at Harvard in 66 and then in 67 the Detroit riots happened. and I it was in the summer and I was studying for a Spanish exam and I was sitting in an apartment watching a little tiny black and white Sony television. And Roger Mudd from CBS was up in a helicopter circling over Detroit, trying to explain why the city was on fire. And he had no idea. You know, he was covering it very much the way we the Vietnam War was being covered you know from a helicopter way up high saying I don't know there's a lot of violence down there I don't really know what's causing it you know or who these people are um, and he was saying that about Detroit and I realized that my god he's supposed to be telling us what's what's going on and he has no clue how these people got to Detroit he didn't even you know he still thought everybody was back in Alabama or something you know he he just had no mm-hmm. clue. And I thought, okay, that's this is where historians come in. You know, he how come he knows so little and how come the people he's talking to know so little about what's going on here? Um, and I'm an early American historian. I wonder where this story of African-American history that's playing out in Detroit, if you follow, the, if you pull that thread, how far back can you go and how far south can you go? Um, and uh I went to the library the next day and went through the stacks and started in Maine and just worked my way down looking for books about early Black history, um, early meaning real early before the American Revolution. And there was virtually nothing, you know, you could find the um small books, but, and, and, but, but again, in that field, it was very New England oriented. So you had all these big time Ivy League professors who had written books about Puritans. And then they wrote an article about Virginia to show that they knew where the South was. You know, They all had one article about Virginia that explained something or other. They never heard of South Carolina. They could, and, and as a graduate student, of course, this is pretty exciting because you're always looking for something that your professors haven't thought of yet or don't know about. And it suddenly became clear to me that these people couldn't find South Carolina on a map, hardly. I mean, they'd certainly never been there. They'd never done any research there. I had sat in on their lectures and South Carolina was never mentioned. You know, if they talked at all about the South. It was Virginia. You know, you got to that when you got to the Declaration of Independence or something. Um, but, and you knew that they grew tobacco in Virginia. That was about it, you know, for the South, you know, and then they would go back to Connecticut and do their thing. So this was, uh, you know, as I say, on the one hand, an opportunity, just in simple, what am I going to study terms, but it, it fit with this larger context I've been talking about of growing up in the civil rights movement, feeling that this is what scholarship is for, is to find out root causes of things. And, 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 so, uh, and my thinking, Adam, was that, and I think it was pretty coherent even at the time, though I wasn't sure what I was gonna find because my professors were telling me, you, you probably won't find anything. You know they didn't keep records, you know, and and so, but they they let me go, you know. They, they but they basically said you're probably not going to find anything, um, and um, and and so that was a that was an exciting time for me, you know. And and I had an older friend Ken Lockridge. I spent time with a lot of. Older graduate students there learned a lot from them, and this was in uh, early 1970. And Ken Lockridge said to me, "He said, Peter, there's it's the tricentennial of the founding of South Carolina in 1670, and they're having a big conference in Columbia, and I'm supposed to go chair some session. And I I've never been down there. I don't want really, you know. He was another. He was very New England focused." Um, he said, I don't I don't really want to go down. there, But you, you you're you interested in this. You were talking about South Carolina. Maybe I'll just write him a letter. You could take my place and just go down there. So I said, I said, yeah, that's great. I'll, I'll, I'll do it. So the first day I was in South Carolina in my life, I was chairing a session on the history of South Carolina. Wow. Wow. and And wow. faking my way through it, you know, and uh, and and coming and 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 it was like starting to do research in a in another country basically another culture because i knew i understood midwestern culture i understood new england culture i'd never spent time in the deep south i'd spent time in kentucky and tennessee and stuff. And, and what i realized very quickly what many historians encounter have encountered this over the years was that they they had a different definition of history. You know, at, at, I mean, the, the Ivy League history was very full of biases, but basically, if you could find documents and prove your point, then that would, then we'll take it seriously. You know, we'll publish your article, whatever, if you've got it put. Whereas in the South, as, as you know, it's, and it's much less true now, but, but in those days it was still very clear that history is a religion, you know, and this is, you know, it's handed down from God, you know, this is the way it happened. And this is what we believe. And this is what why we decorate Confederate graves, and so on and so forth. And this is just what we do. And, and we don't want anybody telling us to do it. Otherwise, you know, it was basically, basically the biggest cover up in the United States of America, you know, is that we don't want anybody to find out what really happened here 200 years ago, you know, and uh, and I re- and but they were all white, I was white. The, I was from Harvard. They knew they were sort of supposed to be nice to me, you know, they couldn't they couldn't put me in a separate reading room the way they did to John Hope Franklin or so. Um, and so I was very polite, and and what and what uh, got their attention was that I stayed. You know, I just rented a room and started going through. And every Monday morning, I'd show up again in the archives, and they would say, "Oh, are you still here?" And and I re- the reason they said that was because I would sit there in the reading room, and every now and then I would see some big wheel. Northeastern scholar come through and ask for a couple of books in the morning and look at them and leave in the afternoon. I mean, they were modern day carpetbaggers basically. They wanted to say that they'd been to South Carolina and checked the records and so on and so forth. They didn't they didn't stick around, you know and here was this young guy who seemed to be sticking around. And so they were, they were very nice to me and uh, let me see what I what I wanted to see. Um, and I very quickly realized that my professors had been completely wrong to say that you're not going to find anything. I, I I went into it thinking, okay, I want to go as far back as I can in time and as far south as I can, so that's South Carolina in 1670, you know, was a good place to start, and then I thought I just want to go forward from there until i have a dissertation you know i will but if the records are thin i I may have to go up to 1820 or something and by the time i'd gotten to 1740 i you know i had more than enough to talk about and more than enough to think about um and and so that was and and i went into it i've said this that just thinking that this is a worst i want to do this as a worst case scenario you know in other words if i can show that you can write decent history about south car black people in south carolina in 1710 then you ought to be able to do it about black people in alabama in 1810 or black people in los angeles in 1910 or whatever you know that that certainly there's going to be more records than the closer you get and the first, and so on and so forth. So, so it was a, a worst case, uh, scenario, but, but again, for a, for a young scholar, it was a best case scenario. Like, oh my gosh, look, look what we're finding here and look what we have to chew on. Yeah. And when I got back harvard and finally turned in my dissertation my professor said well that's that's really good that wraps it up meaning like okay we don't have to think about
1: so (laughs) so actually well with that being said so you're if i'm if i got the right number here you you completed your dissertation um or you graduate, I believe in what 72, 73?
0: 72, yeah, 72. So that yeah,
1: yeah. So so did so between the time that you, you know, 1966, 1972, what was the communication like for them for, for your uh for your um uh dissertation advisors to say, okay, you proved us wrong. what what was because you know, we we spoke before about the different levels of communication between now and you know yeah uh, yeah and, and during the well, 60s 70s so what what did that look like I'm just worried. I mean
0: there's two there's two kinds of communication there's that to me there there's a face-to-face human communication interaction between colleagues between teachers and students between you know that and that's been going on since Socrates I guess you know I mean that that's that's just the way the world works and then there's technological communications and and other kinds of things, you know, but as you know, one of my, you know, the most wonderful student I ever had, Julius Scott, um, when he was out in the field in Jamaica, he was sending me handwritten letters and I was sending handwritten letters back to him and we were communicating, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any of that uh, from my Ivy League professors. As I say, the best thing they could do was just give me permission to go, you know, because, they were used to telling people what they were supposed to study and where they're supposed to go and who they should talk to and so on. And, but I had, I didn't want to play that game. And so I felt lucky to be out of their sphere of influence. You know, they couldn't say, oh, go talk to my friend, Dr. So-and-so. One of the people, so, and one, one of Julius's mentors who was also one of my mentors was a guy named Jack Thomas. He, he he was a postdoc at Harvard and and he was interested in abolition. He he wrote a biography of William Lloyd Garrison, and he was one of the people who got me interested in early Southern history. He gave me a couple of books to read and got me thinking about that. This was as an under when I was an undergraduate. Um, and then he went to Brown and then ended up being one of Julius's. Teachers, you know, um, so we we had that in 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 common. Um, yeah,
1: wow, that, that that's that's fascinating. And and what we had spoken before during the pre that there's going to be these organic uh, areas that that are not uh, prearranged. And so, so I I, that that's actually really good to know in terms of um, well,
0: and what I was gonna what I was trying to say about that, I guess, was just on your communication question was that you know, I was just supposed to report back and deliver chapters. I mean, professors were it was they were it was very remote, um, and they were supportive or not supportive, but they were busy and they were writing their big books, and uh and so you were you were pretty much on your own and so that you know and i was taking notes on that i mean i was realizing boy when i if i become a professor I'm, there's not going to be that much distance between me and my and my students but i was also seeing a graduate program that was very competitive people were you know off on their own trying to one up each other and again i thought boy if i ever get to be part of a graduate program. I want people to share their work, share you know more, more than they were able to do in, in Cambridge or, or New Haven or something. And that was uh, and, and that was the part of the South that, that really excited me besides the work in the archives, was that for the first time, I was in a culture, and you'll appreciate this, that was inherently friendly. Mm-hmm. You know, as I said, even these people who thought, "I don't know why you're studying that. That's a weird topic," were incredibly friendly, and everybody was, you know, was supportive. I mean, that's that's one of the many, I think, contributions of African culture to Southern culture is like, you know, just just. Be yourself, you know, and uh, and that was a that was a great change. That was part of what made me want to to go to Duke when that opportunity arose later later on. Was like, oh, you mean I could, I could do Southern history and African American history, and I could do it in the South, you know, not not at some fancy northern institution where people just read books about it. You know, we could really be there and and talk about it
1: you know so so yeah and 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 actually to that <clears throat> to that point actually about um talking about it and so i'm actually uh want to pivot us towards you know one of the major areas of black majority so um how are you able to illuminate the west african rice cultivation practices in your dissertation that became your first book black majority in 74 did you visit, We we talked about you visiting mm-hmm. south carolina um, so did you actually visit sites of rice cultivation in the low country to see firsthand maybe the geographies that produce rice you know, as um, I said, even I, at that time
0: yeah, I, I I explained how I got there the first time for was for this uh, tricentennial yeah. meeting, and i realized okay i'm I'm gonna have to do ex- explore, you know and and I started in in Colombia, but then I I went to Charleston and and uh, started going through records there, and and taking little side trips whenever I could, um, and so the these the, it, with any dissertation the discoveries come and changes I guess in 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 uh, uh, sequences, so first there was just this general awareness like oh boy this is what I want to study. Nobody's studied it much before. Uh, Let's see what's there. And as I say, what I had learned in high school and college was that the South is Virginia and they grow tobacco. And there was a thing called slavery. Um, So I didn't even know they, I don't think I knew they grew rice in, in South Carolina because nobody did, you know, except You know, folks, in you know, a few folks in South Carolina who wanted to protect that part of the story, but but didn't care if anybody else knew about it. And so it was like, oh, really, they they're growing rice. Okay, why are they? Why are they growing rice? What's this all about? You know, and it, you didn't have to be a rocket scientist to know that the. I mean, I had just spent two years in England. They do not grow rice in England. I can tell you, they grow Brussels sprouts and stuff. <laughs> you know, grow, but they eat rice pudding, right? Well, now why do they eat rice pudding? They started eating rice pudding in the 18th century when they started when rice started coming from from Carolina. You know, so they learned about rice. The hard way, you know, but they certainly didn't didn't know about it. And who knew about it? It was the West Africans, you know, and uh, and that was that was pretty glaringly obvious as I as I got going, you know. So so then I had you know that, but but I can't explain to you, Adam, what a big surprise that was to people, and not just Joe on the street corner. I mean big wheel academics and not just historians really they grew rice there and you think it came from Africa how could that be That nothing came from Africa we know that these people you know they brought nothing they were you know, um, so there was not only this uh, this sense that the people coming from Africa you know how would they know how to grow rice there was this underlying sense they didn't know anything and this was very much after I mean, that was a combination of the old U.B. Phillips school of history, but also the modern civil rights view of history. I mean, once things started getting, I mean, Stanley Elkins had written his big book and his argument was sort of the flip side. I mean, he was saying the Middle Passage was so terrible and these people were treated so badly, you know, that they, whatever they did know was sort of washed out of their heads. You know, I mean, so they were they were starting over from scratch. You know, so that idea of carryovers of people, things coming from Africa and 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 persisting in some form in America uh, were that was that was strange. You know, except for you know, it was accepted that oh, music. You know, yes, maybe maybe there's some musical connections or maybe, but but in terms of. Uh, a, a a big major agricultural contribution like that that, w- that was foreign territory and and of course it's still you know people resist that notion to the present day you know we've gone through a generation of pushback on on all that stuff but it's too bad
1: yeah and and also one of the important areas of your book you also talk about um some of my people as well the the, the galagichi as well and so that you know, I don't know if you know that there was a um, there was a TV show when I was a kid. You know, I was born ninety two, oh, so it wasn't man. all that long ago. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. but it was called a Gullah Gullah Island. Right, right. And I, it's it's wild because I, you know, I didn't grow up in you know the Low Country, South Carolina. I my grandmother did. She was born in uh in thirty eight, and, yeah. and so I knew that she moved from there in her um late teens to move actually down to um down to fort pierce but it's interesting when i look at her uh birth record and look at where my family was it's the yamesee area um as well and you know when i think about yamesee i think about the yamesee war i think about you know a, a series of different histories and so um one of the one of the parts as i was learning more and more about my own family you know history um having your book give me the start of the colony to stono Mm -hmm. rebellion um was really fascinating uh because at the time even just what um three four years ago around the time i first heard about your book it's just been uh, a a blessing to have because Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. knowing you know knowing historically and, and, and the the footnotes and all that it, it's a, it's a it's an offering it's an
0: opening well that's what's been exciting for me you know is is that uh, that excitement and fascination within different parts of the of the black community whether it's younger people like you raised on ron days and uh, the Gullah, Gullah uh, that, that or or older people who, who were just, you know, maybe five, ten years behind me, but realizing, oh, my God, you know, it's what I was saying before. If if he can do this with 17th, 18th century South Carolina, then I can do this with my mother's ancestors in Louisiana or whatever, you know, and so. That it it did have a, a liberating effect. You know there were there were other books too, but but if you think about it, most of the books that were coming out in at the same time in the early seventies that that had a big impact were you've probably read them all. Those big heavy books like there was Genovese and Litwack, and uh, and then. Uh, I don't know, there were were three or four of them. And they were very broad, you know, they and they were very 19th century oriented, you know, they were using the WPA narratives about former slaves and they were looking at cotton culture and, but they were looking very broadly at the whole South and generalizing in ways that you know, I mean, they were trying to tip over UB Phillips, you know, and and say, wait a minute, you know, there's a whole different story here. But they were doing it at a very broad level, which is what you do often in mid-career. But in a dissertation, you want to dig down deeply in a specific place. And I've realized that, you know, South Carolina was the perfect uh, place to do it. There were a couple of other people digging down in uh, in in Virginia, but one, and one of the other things, one of the other big books that the one that meant the most to me actually um, was Winthrop Jordan, White over Black, um, and I the, I meant to get this in before, and I yeah. forgot I was talking about Jack Thomas, uh, who taught me taught Julia Scott um, when I so I told him what I was interested in. He said, "Well, I, I got a young friend." named Wynn Jordan, and he's down in Williamsburg now polishing up this manuscript uh, that's going to be published, and it's about uh, colonial slavery. And, and I said, well, I'm going to Williamsburg with my parents in Christmas time. I'll, I'll go meet him. And I I'll never forget, I, I, I found his office up under the eaves somewhere and knocked on the door, introduced myself. And here was this wonderful young scholar with a stack, it must have been half a foot high of his manuscript that he was working on, you know, and, and he was very supportive of me. And and we talked a lot. He, uh, I, when I, when a second edition of the book came out a few years ago, I actually wrote a, an introduction to it and, and told that story because he had such an effect on me. But when you read the book, which everyone should, it's fascinating, but it's really white intellectual history, you know, it's, right. it's, it's, it's what Europeans thought about Africans, you know, and, and, and that's a wonderful, complicated story that needed to be explored, but it still wasn't the kind of Black social history that I was interested in doing. And again, if you think about it, these people who influenced me, I mentioned Ken Lockridge, but there was a whole school of young colonial historians. John Demos was part of it. Philip Grevin, one of my other teachers, was part of it. And they, they did New England town history. You know, they were doing early American history, but they didn't want to do it the way their elders had done it. They wanted to use this new social history that was coming out of France and that they could marry to a computer because the new technology was so they could take these old you know the puritans kept very good church records and everything so they could take a town like phil grevin took andover massachusetts and they could make a computer card for every person living there you know, and then study it that way, you know. So I wanted to do the same sort of thing in South Carolina. I couldn't, you know, there weren't the records to make computer cards. But, um, but what they taught me or what I learned just watching them was that demography was a very radical science because, because everybody's equal. You know, you can't, you can't do demography, you can't do the demography of Princeton, New Jersey, without studying every person in Princeton, New Jersey, it doesn't matter what race they are, what color, what age, what, the, you know, that, that's, they all have to count. And, and so that was my form of radicalism. And that, and that is why the book is called Black Majority. It's like, you got to understand the numbers here, you know, and, and, and it doesn't have to be fancy equations It's just this is a majority of people, you know, and, and so that basic idea that I wanted to put these people on the map. um, And, and, and then what you make of it, it, that's your, your problem later on, you know, but the first step was to just bring them out from, you know, what Ralph Ellison called invisibility, you know, just make them real.
1: And so with that, with that being said, you know, you mentioned uh, the, the radical nature of putting Black Majority as a title. So did you actually receive any pushback from that in terms of, you know, and, and also this is, goes to a broader question about any challenges that you faced mm-hmm. along the way um, to, pub- uh, to publishing Black Majority?
0: I was really lucky because I the, the timing was awfully good. It was bad in the sense that the word "negro" was still the operative word, so that got into the title, you know. And and uh, but but in terms of pushback, you know, in terms of people saying, "Oh, you're white, so you can't talk about this," that that kind of stuff came a little later. In fact, in my I wrote an article once called "Hey Man, Where Did You Come From?" Because I was at Princeton in the library. Stanley Elkins came to give a talk, and there were the six black undergraduates all came to his talk in order to um, harass him a little bit. Um, And I was in the back of the room. I hadn't published the book yet, and uh, and I and he was talking about how how slavery had made these people you know, unable to resist. And I, I raised my hand, and I said, well, I'm studying, I found this thing in South Carolina called the Stono Rebellion, and they cut off people's heads and they tried to get to Florida and I just laid it. And one of the black students sitting right in front of me, his head just whipped around. And he said, hey man, where did you come from? And that was and and that epitomizes that moment, I guess, in the early 70s where these were militant black students trying to make it in a white academic world and they wanted all the help they could get. I mean, they knew that there was a story out there that was not being told, and and let's get it any way we can. And if this guy's got some information about sub-rebellion in South Carolina, great, we'll take it. You know? so, so that was I. W- I was lucky in in that regard. I think, yeah.
1: And and that's actually a a, a very interesting story. But it's just also thinking about the concept of uh, a white dude like yourself at this time. You know, based upon what you're saying, you're about you're actually about my age. Uh, because I'm 29, and so if I put the numbers, together. I think you're about 29 yeah, this time. Yeah, yeah. And thinking about being in a room and talking about at that time, maybe not, you know, not as much, you know, I would say now, but at the time speaking about, you know, ripping white men's heads off during it, during a rebellion. um, and, and what kind of, like, I don't know, like I don't visually know what the Academy, you know, looked and sounded like in the seventies, but I can only imagine what that, what the visceral responses might've been.
0: Well, I mean, the Academy was very- Did I get that wrong or? No, I I mean, the Academy was very torn, you know, because on the one hand you had all these, they were were trying to integrate, they were trying to broaden their course offerings. You know, Harvard, when I was a graduate student, decided that through student pressure, they decided they ought to offer a course in African-American history, not a program, but a course. and they said, well, it'll only be one semester because you couldn't really fill two semesters with black history. You couldn't do that. You know, there's not enough, you know, <laughs> and, and that, so that and they were looking around for for people to be TAs, you know, and they they plucked me. I got So I got to teach a section of that course. And it was it was enlightening, you know, because I had some of these young black undergraduates who were. Wonderfully impatient, you know. Like, come on, man, let's get to the heart of this. You know what, what's going on here. You know they 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 were impatient, but as I said, sort of, relatively speaking, un, uninformed. You know, I mean, they they got nothing in high school. They got you know they some of them, a lot of them were not history majors were not gonna become historians. They were there to become a lawyer or a doctor or something where they could get the family out of debt. And, uh, and but, but that, that impatience was, was wonderful, you know? And, and it's one of the things that's hardest, I think for later generations, as I've watched right up to your generation, the problems of doing research without having too many people causing good trouble to the left of you. You know what I'm saying? You know, I mean, so all the time that I was in the library or in the classroom, I knew that there were people out there marching in the streets or saying, we've got to change this, or why aren't we allowed to vote? Um, And that, you know, that allows you to, first of all, it's just motivational. You know, it's like, I got to get this written, you know, and then to see the, get the feedback I mean, I I remember going visiting Bennett College in Columbia. It was a black school. Yep, my, my, I've you know I've family members that yeah. I, that attended. Yeah. Okay. Well, I drove into the parking lot and there was a a, a little booth there, and there was a black attendant, um, and he was reading Black Majority. Really? Yeah. And, and I thought. I've arrived. Wow. You know, that's it. I don't, wow. I don't care if, you know, if, if, who's read it at, at Yale, you know, I this is the, this is who it was written for. This is, and if, and, you know, I'm sure it was the longest, toughest book he'd read in months, but motivation is tremendous, you know? So, and it's just what you're saying. It's like, oh, this book holds the key. This is for me, you know, this is relevant. You know, I've, I've yeah. got, um black friends in south carolina for whom it was you know they they say oh yeah i remember when i got hold of that book just because it's like oh my gosh somebody you know i knew there was a story there Mm. you know i I remember the first time i gave a talk about my work again this was in the at the aha in washington dc in in 72 i think Um, and when Jordan chaired the session, you know, and was very said, "Here, listen to what this guy has to say." And I talked about what I was finding to this very confused-looking audience, mostly white. And there was a wonderful black woman in D.C. named Green. I forget her first name, and she, an old-time, you know, Black History of D.C. She'd been doing it for years. And I remember she came up to me afterwards, and she just shook my hand. She said. I knew somebody would do it, you know. And it was like, okay, it happens to be you. That's great, you know. But somebody, you know, it's just sitting there for somebody to write this stuff down. <laughs> so that was inspirational.
1: And so, we are now fifty years after your dissertation mm. is accepted, and you're good. Two years out of fifty years of the book's uh, publication, um, if I got that right. <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah. What does black majority mean to you now? What does what does the the process mean to you and also what it's meant to, as you mentioned before, to the countless people um, that you've interacted with because of the book?
0: Well, as you can tell from what I'm saying, it was a tremendous learning experience for me. You know, it was uh, I it just opened up worlds to me, you know, um, learning more. About African American history, more about Southern history, um, and and I think and it holds up pretty well. I'm uh, Norton Press says they want to do a 50th anniversary edition, so that would be cool. You know, in other words, yeah. it's it is still relevant, I think. And I, there's probably a few things I would change or add, but 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 not much, because. Um, if you think about so much of, I mean, obviously, Black history has changed and exploded and expanded in so many wonderful different ways. But at the same time, over those 50 years, the culture as a whole has become less and less interested in history, less and less capable of moving into the past, and really incapable of moving into the deep past. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so I mean, at Duke in the 80s, most of the students who came wanted to study the Civil Rights Movement, you know, and wanted to do recent history, you know, and now students coming to graduate school want to study the influence of hip hop and things, you know, and perfectly good viable topics from the near past, you know, but the Civil Rights Movement seems like a pretty far reach, you know, and the Civil War, that's a that's a big stretch, but it's important. So we better learn a little about reconstruction or something. And then we heard about Sally Hemings. So we really better go back and talk about Jefferson one more time and do all that stuff. (laughs) But the idea, so to me, and this is what I learned then and I'll, I'll stick to it is it's all set in stone by the time you get to 1776, it has all happened. And it's happened mostly in South Carolina more than in Virginia. Um, both in terms of the establishment and the beginnings of black culture, but also in terms of the establishment and beginnings of American racism, you know, that uh, it is, it is cast in carved in stone uh, by that time, you know, or, or so that they can't get out from from under it, you know, it's, uh, and it, it could have played out differently. It, I'm not, I'm not saying um, stamped from the beginning, you know, I I'm, I'm a great believer that there was a lot of change there, and there was there were moments in the 17th century when North America could have gone in a different direction. Um, and I I'll, I'll stick to that, but I now call it the terrible transformation, and a lot of other people call it that too. You know that that period from the from the 1660s, you know, just when Carolina is being formed. By 1720, the transformation has happened. You know, there's this huge commitment to race-based slavery. Um, And and in order to make that work, we're going to have to explain... Why these why we're treating these people like chattel, you know, and we have to define them as not people and we have to make it clear that they're ignorant and they don't understand anything and Africa was a dark continent and, you know, all the nonsense of of American racism gets built before the American Revolution. It it then gets elaborated in the 19th century with new kinds of pseudoscience and nonsense, but but the commitment to the fact that, you know, that, that idea of the planter that I'm treating these people well, and they're lucky to have me uh, showing them the gospel or something that all that nonsense um, begins very early. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and I argue that our inability to go back and understand that root cause is still what's holding us back. Um, you know, the, the, so so there's yeah. much more to be learned. Yeah. And, and to that point,
1: too. Um, and, and I think it I think we should definitely talk a bit more about um, the kind of like the 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 current day history wars that mm. have, you know, thinking about generations. I wondered, uh, <laughs> you know, for a while. So I started graduate school. Um, I actually started my master's in 2015. So, you know now moving towards the end of the dissertation now it's like think around like that pre-1619 project I wondered what was my generation's version going to be I heard about you know uh, Liz Cheney and Eric Foner on I think it was like firing lines or something like that in the 80s or 90s and um, I read uh, it was like that that it was there was a book that I think uh, the Hortons uh, wrote about public history um, mm-hmm. that that describes mm-hmm. some of these discussions too yeah. but I wondered what was that going to be for me so I definitely think that it, it should be good especially because one of your old students is uh usually involved in some of these kerfuffles now uh i.e uh the man who got liberty is sweet from you yeah, um yeah
0: sure so
1: we'll definitely have to talk about that um but you encountered him at Duke so let's go there for a moment Um, Not only, obviously, are you a a well-known scholar, but also I've heard through the grapevine, you're also a really good teacher as well. Um, So I'm also interested to know about, you know, tell us, tell the audience about some of your, uh, you know, some of your best experiences in the classroom um, at Duke over the course of your career.
0: Well, uh... you have many. Yes, I'm I'm sure there are, but they they're very unpredictable. You know, I mean, and this is I've talked a little bit about the way I was educated formally, you know, in in uh, segregated private schools and upper class universities and so on. Um, Informally, I was being educated by my parents who were wonderful and told me to learn about everything I could, you know. And, and then I've talked about going to the South and, and, and when I first got to Duke, I mean, one of the things I talked about how friendly people were, the the upshot, I mean, that's nice. But the upshot of that is, they'll want to talk, you know, this, and they'll want to tell you a story. And I had been told My New England education was don't ever tell a story. You know, don't just just tell the facts, you know, don't don't introduce yourself into the story at all. And one, I mean, the best storyteller was, uh, was a Texan named Larry Goodwin who wrote about populism and who was very excited about civil rights, had been in the civil rights movement, was excited ab- about it, was excited about oral history. He and Bill Chafe were setting up the oral history program there. Um, and, and Larry would say, come on, Peter, I, I gotta, we got to talk about this, you know, and so let's go have a beer you know and then he'd say first i got to tell you a story and then he you would get this long shaggy dog story that but but he opened that world up to me like it's okay to to we all have stories and we all need to share them and that was and so that became a part of my teaching, you know, uh, helping not telling my story, but helping other people tell theirs. You know, I would teach undergraduate classes where people had to research their own family, but also link that up to what was going on. You know, who's your grandfather? Okay, now let's find out what was going on when, when he was a kid, you know, and, and see the connections, you know, putting, putting individuals into, into history, you know, which is the opposite of great man history, where you're just supposed to sit back and say, Oh my gosh, you know, Abraham Lincoln did this, you know, and, but if you, you know, you want to know where your family fits in that broader story. So a lot of my best experiences came from, from that. The other thing that was so striking and what, and, was that, um, I don't know how to describe it. We built a community, you know, not consciously. It really came about, uh, I won't say by magic, because we were determined about it. But the best students recruited each other. We were, again, the timing was wonderful because by the early 80s, um, Bill Chafe and Larry Goodwin and myself and Ray Gavins and others, we'd all published, Sid Nathans, we'd all published books. So people could, if you're interested in history or Southern history, you realize, oh, there's a bunch of folks down at Duke. But there was also a feeling, especially within the Black community, was from their parents was, I'm not gonna go south to study. You know, grow, growing up here in Chicago, I'm not gonna go, go to North Carolina to study history. You know, I, I'd rather go to almost anywhere, you know. And so it took, so so Jennifer Morgan, whom you have interviewed and, and no, I mean, Jennifer was at Oberlin, um, and, but she had an aunt or a, she had roots in Durham. So she she'd been to Durham. It's like, okay, yeah, that, that'd be cool, you know. And she came and she brought a friend with her. And then the next year uh Matt Countryman came from overland And then and then there were three. So once once there was this little cohort, we didn't have to recruit. We would just say, Well, you know, I understand why you might be hesitant about coming to Duke, but why don't you just go? have lunch with with these guys and see what they're talking about. And of course they were over the top. They were saying, man, you gotta come. You know, we need we need more people like you. So you should come. And these professors aren't as scary as they look. You know, they're actually pretty friendly. We go out and drink beer with them. And and so so you should go, you know, and and you could just see this uh this community build, you know, uh, yeah, Jennifer's husband, Herman, Herman Bennett came on his motorcycle, you know, and, and joined the crew and each one of them brought something new. You know, Tim Tyson was a white bartender in Atlanta,
1: uh, obsessed
0: with the civil rights movement. Um, Really? Yeah. And he just, and he wrote a letter saying, you know, I, I want to study history. You know, we got to figure this stuff out. You know, the, the South's gotten it all wrong. And we said, okay, come on. And, and he looked around the department. It, you know, there was this nice cohort of doing oral history and Southern history. Um, but there was also a military history component that was pretty separate and pretty um, distant from what we were up to. And, and Tim, this gets back to Southern friendliness again, the son of a preacher. I mean, he couldn't stand that. He he looked around in two weeks and, and he said, okay, Saturday night, everybody's coming over to my house for fried chicken. You know, And he brought all these people together. And again, it was almost like magic seeing people who'd never even dared talk to each other before, uh, realizing that they could break bread together, you know, and learn from each other and become friends with each other and help each other, you know, and, and so there was a there was a real community there that was um, that, that built on itself. I mean, th- those good things don't last forever. You know, people go on and graduate and things change, people retire and, and, uh, and the atmosphere changes. But, but there were uh, 10 or 15 years there that were just about as good as it gets.
1: And so you mentioned um, a, a couple of different people. Uh, earlier, you spoke about Dr. Julius Scott, um, Dr. Jennifer Morgan. Um, And I, another person I interviewed before was uh, Dr. Vincent Brown.
0: You know, you mentioned her,
1: there there are many people to talk about. I'm interested in in the three I just mentioned, uh, Morgan, Brown, and Scott. As someone who who was in the classroom with them and saw their maturation from the beginning when they came in or show their interest to when they finished, what qualities stood out about them during graduate school? And I say and I ask this question in particular because I'm also in, a, in graduate school now, you know, motivation. But also we have a lot of graduate students who, you know, see these books, see these awards, see all of the accolades and where they are now, but might not know as much about their beginning time. So enlighten the folks, if, if you don't mind.
0: Well, again, these were people, they were a very diverse group. I mean, Vince, Vince was coming from California. And I, in fact, I remember I was the director of graduate studies. I remember recruiting him on the phone and trying to convince him that, wow. uh, you know, that it would be okay to come to, you know, and, uh, and, and, and so, um, he finally came. he told me uh, I talked to his class a couple of months ago and he told me a story about it. he remembered when he first arrived his parents brought him to, to to Durham and I met them and 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 said something like I don't know thank you for for trusting us with your son or something like that and he was very he was very struck that we actually cared about him and his family and how they were going to, how they were going to do, you know? So, so I think they were all people who were very sharp, no question about that. Um, And, but who were willing and able to, to learn from, from each other, you know? I mean, I think so that often our task was, was standing back and, and And, you know, let many flowers bloom, you know, and find out who's going to be interested in what, you know, where they're going to take it. Um, And, and it was, it's very hard to describe because it was a feeling, it wasn't individual students, it was this feeling that they shared, you know, that they would get together and hash things out, you know, and then, but not Under the table, you know, they would bring that to seminar the next day and say, we've been talking about this. What do you think about that? You know, well, let's go have a beer and talk about that some more, you know, and, and so you could see them um, pushing forward and realizing I mean it's almost like you know when you're when you're an adolescent and you're trying to figure out where the boundaries are like okay can I try this can I do that and if your parents are saying yeah that's cool do that or probably not a great idea to do that or whatever you know it's not as though we were just saying you know whatever to these people we were being very specific saying no actually that paper's not very good and you didn't dig very deep and y- you can go further and so on you know so and that part of it i was bringing i think from my ivy league training you know of just always keep moving the bar up and keep uh you know keep the pressure on people but but also uh Leaven it with this sense of camaraderie you know that we're all in this together nobody there's no hierarchy here it doesn't matter how old you are what color you are well how much you get paid whatever we're all because we got a bigger problem which is explaining racism in america you know and we're gonna do it through really good case studies you know we're gonna you know so whatever you picked you know uh um, that that then just really really do a good a good job with it, you know. Hassan Ooh. Jeffries, you know, picked up county in Alabama and just studied the hell out of it, you know. And and look at him now, you know, at Ohio State. You know, I mean, he's become a real leader, you know. And and that was true was of, of so Stephanie Smallwood, you know, I'm I'm gonna study the slave trade, and this was when. This was long before Marcus Radiker, you know, this is there, there was not much on the Middle Passage, it was a dark hole, so to speak, you know, and she was like, okay, I'm gonna zero in on that. And boy, once she zeroed in, you know, she went to London, got into the shipping records, but she had people like Julius and others around saying, yeah, that's just what we do, you know, that's, you know, so they're all, they're all uh, nudging each, each other.
1: And speaking of nudging, also from, you know, listening and, and, and reading, I also found that there was a lot of nudging in terms of institutional commitments um, at Duke as well. Um, so because it's there's a reason why so many people, so many black graduate students came. Um, and so can you speak in particular about the institutional changes and also the institutional commitments that Duke showed um, in this particular period? Uh, that you mentioned.
0: Well, it's interesting and and complicated, and I don't want to I don't want to oversimplify it. I wouldn't quite okay. call it institutional commitment. In okay. Okay. Duke with a capital D. I mean, I think, you know, Terry Sanford became the president. That the institutional commitment of Duke, and and you may have seen this at Rutgers too, is when you're at a good university that's not quite the best. They want to, you know, some of them are willing to stay there, but others want to get better. And it's like, okay, how can we get better? And if it's if it's having a stronger African-American history program, that's great. We'll do it. You know, but if it's if it's doubling the business school, we'll do that. You know, I mean, there's this. But just so that institutional motivation was there to do. You know, Larry Goodwin, whom I talked about, um, he wasn't even a scholar. He'd been a newspaper reporter, you know, and then decided to go to history graduate school in Texas. And and Terry Sanford basically just just plucked him and said, here, you know, you should be in our history department. And and he could do that. You know, that's the worst of the southern planter tradition. (laughs) You know, there's nothing very democratic about that, you know, Um, but it meant that he just he just wanted to build a, a, a university the basketball team was another way to build a university. So if you can get a good coach and if he can recruit good people and, and Krzyzewski had the same problem that we had, you know, how are you going to get Gene Banks to come from Philadelphia to, to play at Duke, you know? I mean, and, and so, um, so that, had to sort of mesh you know i mean that was the same thing that that like okay duke duke's a good place to come and you can actually study african-american history with ray gammons and you can you know do all these things uh, uh you know i i taught gene i i i, I taught uh i a number of the basketball players, you know, and, and uh, Grant Hill, I taught him everything he knows about Native American history, you know, and, and he's a great student, you know, so they were, they, they were also getting good athletes who were good students. And that was, that was cool, you know, so there was, so that's the institution. But what they were also, do, they were also trying to integrate you know, so they were hiring, you know, they were more willing and able to hire um, black secretaries and black deans and so on that wouldn't have been there before. And those people were crucial. They were mostly women, um, but the, 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 or Bill Chafe and Larry Goodwin in the oral history program hired Thelma Kithcart to be the, the secretary. Uh, and she became The mother superior. I mean, you know, she was the person she was African American and local and excited about what the program was doing. And all of a sudden, here were all these sharp young black students coming in. And if they had a problem, they would take it to Thelma first. (laughs) And, you and so she w- she became part of the glue holding it together. You know? And then a woman named Jackie Looney worked her way up as a dean. Um, and she, you know, a diversity dean or whatever, you know, obviously, mean, so she had some money to move around. And she realized, oh my God, the history department, they, they, these folks are serious. You know, we can so we could just call her up and say, look, you know. Julius needs help going to Jamaica or something. And she could she was all over it, you know, in a very quiet way, you know, working the bureaucracy, knowing knowing what to do. But so th- those people had a had a huge um, impact in terms of the of the in- institution, you know And yeah, and and the undergraduates were changing too. You know, they were going from recruiting black athletes. To gradually just recruiting good black students who didn't have to play basketball or football or anything, um, and that was that was changing, you know. So it was interesting to see the the uh, and and Durham itself was changing and Chapel Hill were changing, you know. So the first project that the oral history program did it was a summer program before I got there, it, um, where they brought young black scholar graduate students together on the campus in a dorm for a month to study the civil rights movement in Chapel Hill using oral history and and they had they planned it out wonderfully figured out who they should talk to and so and they would they would go out every day this was about in the in the 70s so all all the players were still right there and they would go and some of them would go interview black players. Some of them would go interview white players. Then they'd come back and have dinner together and compare notes. You know, well, he said that that's not the way it happened. This is, well, you know, the reason that, you know, and, and so they were, they were doing history, uh, in a, in a wonderfully, um, inclusive way, you know, realizing that you, you got to get all sides of the picture to. To really put it together, it was great, and they were all learning from each other, which was the key.
1: And that's fascinating. Just thinking about the institutional, and, and I think one of the one of the reasons why I'm happy about this interview is because I'm learning so much. Um, you know, my partner, she's uh, working on a PhD on the Civil Rights Movement in Florida, and so cool. so just thinking about just some of the some of the things that I know that some of the things that she said. And, in terms of people she's like See, Larry I'm, Larry
0: Goodwin yes. was in that movement i mean he he was covering it as a reporter and watching it yeah. firsthand and writing about it for the texas observer and you know and so then he was passing what he'd learned on to the rest of us you know and but he didn't have the distance on it that she has you know i mean so to be coming you know you lose something and you gain something by being by having that added distance yeah
1: yeah yeah, cool. so I'm 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 really happy because I'm learning I'm learning a lot and, uh, and it'll be important once I start uh, filling out my syllabi uh, for for uh, the the full African American history survey as opposed to my niche which is the right, right. The, the first half. So yeah, yeah. Um, And so you know we had mentioned um, uh, Dr. Julius Scott earlier, um, you know, who unfortunately uh, passed away um, a few months ago. And, you know, he was somebody that for me, you know, his dissertation, you know, it, you know, you obviously know this probably more than anybody, but um, it really changed the game and it provided a lot of people. I still remember the first time that I read it uh, or or read portions of it. I was actually um, a graduate student at uh, the University of Delaware and uh, Dr. Morgan had given a talk in my um Black Atlantic and the archives class. Hmm. Um, and I remember going that I had just gotten uh, the, the, the copy of the verso, the full, but I wanted to see what did the actual dissertation, I wanted to see what the bound dissertation looked like. And pretty much most libraries now I feel, or at least academic ones have it. Um, and I remember it was like a blue cover and I just opened it. I'm like, wow. Just thinking about how many other people from around the country and probably around the world even have have uh, have opened this version of it. You know, yeah. obviously, the, the the Verso cover is yeah. is amazing. And I'm very glad I have multiple
0: yeah, copies. Beautiful. Yeah. He and I corresponded a lot about what what was, he I mean, Julius was a perfectionist, you know, so he, you know, right down to he is like, oh, OK, they want to publish it. But I don't know, you know, what, what's going to be on the cover. We got to get this right. You know, and uh, and so he he, he was uh, he was a stickler yeah 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 but but you're right it that was the you know that i've talked to a lot of people who describe it as a as a mixtape you know that was yeah. sort of passed around for, you know and and uh, and it's amazing how many people it it touched and inspired and excited both the subject matter and the quality of it you know and and the and also this this fascination of almost i mean it's not esoteric it's it's more like why didn't we think of that before or what did we think these sailors were doing or you know it's just um built in um so uh, yeah
1: And, and so with that take us back to the dissertation um what was what were your first thoughts when he um approached you with the idea of dissertation that became the common one because i'm not clear about whether or not that was its initial name when he first put uh uh, put the idea on you but take us back to to that moment if you don't mind
0: no you know i think titles don't come at the very start you know he i mean he was widely read and he may have known that that poem but uh but i you know, it it gelled over time. I mean, my recollection, I may have this wrong, I think he first came to Duke thinking he would do civil rights history like all these other folks, you know, and, and got sort of drawn back into the colonial period, you know? I mean, he was interested in everything, so... It, but, and I think, I mean, we had a wonderful relationship and of learning from each other, and I think he was, I remember... I, I saw an interview with him that he did, you know, just a couple of years ago, where he, he said, yeah, Peter Wood, he he was one of my teachers, he he knew a lot about South Carolina, you know, but he didn't know much about Barbados, you know. And of course, I've, you know, the first chapter is called The Colony of a Colony. It's about how all these people came from Barbados, and that's where this whole mess got started. Um, And I think he was rightly struck that I'd never been to Barbados, you know, and I was I mean, I was focused on South Carolina and and again, that's given what I've told you about my training and the state of colonial history it was 13 English colonies, you know, you didn't do very much with Louisiana, you didn't do very much with, with with the Caribbean, you know, and they, you know, Franklin tried to get those people to join in the American Revolution, and they wouldn't do it. So America becomes, you know, the 13 colonies and where they went, you know, and, and so colonial American history, I didn't, the reason I was even interested in the Caribbean at all was from being in at Oxford for two years, you know, and there were English historians. There was a guy named Pears, P-A-R-E-S, who had written about um, what was going on in the Caribbean in the 18th century. And I was fascinated, like, whoa, this is relevant. You know, I hadn't, nobody ever told me about that piece of the story. Um, and so uh, I think, I think Julius realized just the way when I was, at Harvard, realizing, oh my God, there's something that these folks don't know about. I think he was sitting there in Durham saying, "This is pretty exciting. These people don't know beans about the Caribbean," you know. And and he was very influenced by C.L.R. James, and uh, you know, and he he just knew there was there was more to be done there, you know. And there was there was obviously good good work going on on the Caribbean, but but not in the field of early American history so much as, you know, it was Caribbean studies. It was, it was, um, anthropologists, uh, doing studies there, but, but, uh, so he, re- and, and he had the same experience I did. Okay. I got to go see, I've got this idea, but am I going to be able to find enough records, you know? And, and so I still have the letters that he wrote back to me from Jamaica, Say, and I've, they're posted online. If you go to the that H Haiti, um, there's a whole tribute section for Julius, and yep, yep. and I just took a couple of those letters and quoted them because they're wonderful. Because it's that moment of excitement when the graduate student first gets into the field and really starts testing their ideas, and say, you know, and and as you know, sometimes you're gonna. Sometimes they're going to pan out. Sometimes they're not. You know, you're going to find new things, but your old ideas are going to disappear pretty fast and so on. So he was in that exciting moment of writing back and saying, you know, I I think there's there's some stuff here that's pretty awesome. And it seems to these people really are carrying information and they really do know what they're doing. And, and uh, so that was that was exciting for all of us and he and he had this wonderful writing skill you know I mean he was he's really a, a beautiful writer as a as a historian you know I mean he knew how to weave facts and stories together to make an argument and uh, and to really show that there was a common wind that we had been uh, oblivious to before you know and and again that's just had wonderful um. um impact, you know, and the fact that he was a young black scholar meant for lots of other young black scholars like, wow, if he can do it, I can do that, too, you know, so uh, I'd whereas for, from, for me, a generation earlier, there were a lot of people who looked at my book and, and thought, I hope this guy's a black Scholar, you know, I I got a letter from Knopf forwarded a letter in very I'll never forget it. It was very careful handwriting from a black man in Connecticut, and he said, "Could you please inform me whether Doctor Wood is a person of color?" You know, and he was just hoping, like, "Oh man, this would be great." You know, somebody went to Harvard and had a Rhodes scholarship. Man, if he's black, we've this is perfect, you know, but those days hadn't arrived yet. You know. And when I I'll tell you a funny story, I uh, when the when Black Majority came out, uh, they invited me into Knopf to talk to the publicity director to uh, to decide you know, how to publicize the book. And I walked into the office and it was this big, burly, blonde woman and her jaw just dropped. And she said, Oh, Dr. Wood, I thought you were a Negro. Um, and then she pulled herself together and said, That's okay. We'll get you on the radio. <laughs> wow. So, so, you know, that is so, so, so that's the early seventies, you know, people hoping, you know, wouldn't it be great if guy's a black scholar, well, Hey, the Ivy league has been segregated for 200 years. He's not, it's not going to happen. But then, you know, just a couple of decades later for Julius to be the real thing, you know, like, Oh my God, here is a serious You know, it, 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 here's the Michael Jordan of, uh, early Atlantic history, you know, and uh, that was pretty exciting.
1: No, and, and actually, you know, that, that's an interesting comparison, considering, you know, Jordan was right across, actually at the same time, you <laughs> yeah. know, then they're oh, that's contemporaries, right. effectively of each other.
0: But that's that thing about athlete, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, what do black people do? They shoot hoops. You know, I mean, like, oh, sure, they can come to Chapel Hill as long as they can get us an NCAA championship or something. Mm. Um, but if we invite you as a scholar who's just published a book called the 1619 Project, we, we may not even give you a full salary, and you may decide to go elsewhere. You know, there's still, yeah. a, you know, so so that whole idea of I mean, I think the common thread that runs through this and certainly the work that I did and Julius did and and lots of others as well is that this is not rocket science if you start from the assumption that these people are, are smart and doing what they need to do you know, I mean, we now call it agency or some, you know, we got a lot of fancy academic terms for it, but it's really just assuming that, are these people doing what you would do in that situation? You know, if if you're a sailor on a ship in the Caribbean, or if you're in the rice fields in Carolina or whatever, you know, it's like, let's just start from that assumption, as opposed to this inherited assumption, you know, that which is all of American racism, you know, black people are, uh, you know, are physical, not mental and blah, 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 you know, all all that stuff. If you just set that aside and say, yes, they're smart and diverse and trapped in a and I cause you probably know I I don't call them plantations anymore I call them slave labor camps you know and I think we just you know we still have a long way to go to overcome the denial that is at the heart of of American history you know even though we have African-American studies programs and and you know we've done a very good job of educating each other within the academy and maybe a few of our friends and relations but you know we're, we're reaping the whirlwind now of not having gotten the word out more broadly you know we've I, I I still think we've really failed in terms of of sharing this story broadly and making it part of you know as an assumed part of american history
1: Agreed. Agreed. And it makes you just think about, you know, you had mentioned 1619 Project before and thinking about the um, contemporary history wars that we find ourselves in now. um, You know, going back to to what Woody's doing um, and 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 many other people are doing around the country because I'm from the state of Florida, Mm -hmm. you know, Florida and Virginia, Florida, Virginia and Texas really Mm -hmm. are the ground zero of the 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 con- of the contemporary history wars, um, and and a friend of mine you know got hemmed up. He's a professor at uh, a J. Michael um, uh, Butler. He's at Flagler College in Saint Augustine, and uh, he was giving a, um, I believe like a, a talk to maybe some teachers. I think maybe the Lord Humanities Council or something. And next thing I know, on news bulletins, you know, people are just going crazy because he's just talking about. The, the Civil rights movement just teaching history and and so just thinking about if if one were to try to teach black majority the actual history but then also your analysis or a you know or uh Jane landers for instance um to to put you know specifically in Florida
0: um well I mean that could be considered a problem, yeah, I mean, think about it this way, think about you know I told that story about. Princeton, 1971, hey man, where did you come from? You know, of, and and now we're looking at the flip side of that. You know, it's it's lots of insecure white Southerners saying, you know, looking at someone giving a lecture about the civil rights movement or about civil blacks in the civil war or, or what Woody Holton teaching about the revolution, whatever and saying, hey man, where did you come from? You know, like, in other words, that's not the history I learned in high school. How, who let you in here? You know, why are, where did this come from? You know, because, because they haven't been privy to this evolution within the academy of the last 50 years you know like if you if you were in the academy or if you were aspiring to be in it or if you were just reading a lot of books you know you were realizing oh man this is cool we're we're really learning a lot you know but if you were off running a drill press somewhere uh in tuscaloosa you know it's like what's this all about you know and and then if Rush Limbaugh tells you it's critical race theory or something, you know, they can get you stirred up about it um, out of out of ignorance, you know, and and so um, and for me, it's all going back to that early period and understanding might see my dad was a doctor, you know, and and he in order to understand why somebody is sick, you want to know where did you know they sit you down and start asking you questions. When did you first start feeling this way? You know, what, what, what did you eat that day? What, what did you, you know, and you want to get back to the beginning, you know, you want to say, well, now wait a minute, six months ago, were you having these feelings, you know, whatever, you know, and, and that's what we need to do in American history. We need to go back to the beginning and say, wait a minute, how did this start? You know, what, what's the beginning here, you know, and, and it's not surprising, you know, it's, it's, white Christian Europeans making a hell of a lot of money by not paying wages, <laughs> you know, they never, I mean, the question I often ask is, students is, how would this be different if from Jamestown on, they had just said, okay, you're gonna pick tobacco and I'm gonna pay you 10 cents a week, you know, like it would it would be a crappy wage, but it would be a wage. You know, it would be because there are plenty of people who came through Ellis Island, and people said, "Oh, okay, you know, you can work in the sweatshop for ten cents a week." You know, and people said, "Yeah, great, maybe I can send my kid to school if I, if we eat soup every night or whatever." You know, there was some possibility. And and the the the, the tragedy of slavery is that it, it's a prison. You know, it's a you are not gonna. You know, you need to understand from the start you are not. You don't have any privileges. You have no future. Your children will have no future. You know, you cannot read a book. You cannot do X, Y, or Z. You know, I, I um and uh and we don't understand yet the the implications of that, both um in terms of its effects within the the Black community, its effects within the South, and then its effects within the whole culture. You know, I mean that's that's the cancer that, uh, that we're still living with.
1: Yeah. And, and to your point about understanding the totality of, of enslavement, you know, your use of slave labor camp as one of them, you know, I had mentioned to you via email that I'm teaching a, uh, two African-American history uh, courses for high school and middle mm-hmm. graders. Uh, yeah. That's December. great. And, and, so, and it's, uh, yeah. And, and one of the things that i found fascinating, so it's, they're all Black students through um, it's through the W. B. Du Bois uh, Scholars Institute. I believe it's yeah. through Princeton and uh, William Patterson University. And so the interesting thing that I found with the students is that they're all from New Jersey. Um, and I tried to lean into the New Jersey story, especially in the um, in the pre-Civil War era. And so when I let them know that. there were enslaved people in the state of New Jersey. Up until the Civil War. And in actuality, New Jersey never ratified the 13th Amendment. And the governor of New Jersey in January of 1866 had to actually uh, uh legislate that slavery was over, as opposed to being part of the broader country. Sure, sure. And so yeah. Yeah. And, and so you know, and, and and sometimes people will think that you need a black majority for slavery to matter, but Tell that to the right. however many there were. Yeah. And th- this yeah. is the kind of story I say with um, I, I write about Southern Appalachia and um, in, in black Southern Appalachian sure. history. And, you know, people will think that just because the 1860 census said in a county there were only 300 black people that were enslaved. But the thing is, there are only 305 black people in the county and ninety nine point nine of them are enslaved. What does that say?
0: Depending which county you look
1: at. Right, you know? exactly. I'm looking at like west of, of, of Asheville, for instance. Yeah, well, right. when I looked
0: at Logan County, you know, all the white boys fought for the Union. You know, you wouldn't know it now. You drive around there and everybody's mm-hmm. got a Confederate flag on their pickup truck. But but in, in 1860, they were fighting for the Union. So, yeah, I mean, this... it's so great that you're that you're teaching this and getting that that age group and getting them excited about it and just just you know that's what history is it's learning that it's it's more complicated than you thought but it's also more obvious than you thought you know it's you you need to know and and i always go back to the demography i mean i'm struck one of the things that's you know it's important to learn about racism in new jersey and say you know and it's important i mean a good friend of mine has just written a wonderful book called south to freedom that's about mm-hmm. uh, you know slaves escaping new mexico you know missing piece of the story you know but it's only a few thousand people right. you know another friend has just written a book about the dismal swamp about people hiding okay. out of the swamp you know called dismal freedom you know okay. Same thing. It's uh, that's even smaller. That's a couple of hundred people. So we tend, both as authors and as audiences, we tend to be drawn to—I don't want to call them feel-good stories, but you know, stories of of you know breaking out of prison or do you know doing something different, uh, coping with racism in the north or something. But the further you go back in time. It's a southern story, you know, I mean, it's it's millions of people living in the gulag in the south. And it's and the the fascinating good and bad stories about slavery in New York and New England and Connecticut, New Jersey, you know, I mean that those stories are, are good and important and and a lot more uplifting than life in the in in the gulag. but. Um, but for most African Americans, there—that's where their ancestry goes back to the gulag. You know, I mean, you're you—the links you were just describing uh, in Yamasee, South Carolina. You know, the the grandparents of those people were were living closer to the coast. You know, and mm-hmm. and they were growing rice too. You know, they were. Um, so it's. Um, yeah, we we got a lot more to learn. A lot more. To yeah,
1: learn. and and actually, and this will be um, our our last question before we wrap up. To that point, you know, you you've been part of, you know, uh, starting in the in the seventies, right, when you first got your job job at Duke and writing your finished up your dissertation. You know, you've been part of, you know, a uh, particular generation, the eighties and the nineties, and now looking towards the future in terms of, you know past 2022 and you had referenced it a little bit just now looking at the kind of feel-good stories that you often see in terms and that's almost in a way you actually kind of in a way wonder is that an awards-based model that you know are people doing that to try to win awards uh in a way that's a question i always have but with that being said what do you see as the what do you see as the future of the field of, of the study of enslaved people and also the study of, of, of uh, the actual institution of slavery what do you think that scholars need to return to, kind of leave? You know, I'm just interested in your general thoughts about where the field is going and where do you think that people should go? I don't think that those are necessarily the same thing.
0: Yeah, it obviously it's it's hard to predict and and it's hard it's hard to know because you you get so many cross currents, you know. But certainly for me. I've said to me the big failing of the last 50 years has been reaching a broader public, which means also reach, a, a, which is also a non-Black public, you know, it, it's, uh, I mean, I I think that, you know, there's a whole different view in the Black community of, of excitement, of, you know, now I can do my genealogy, you know, it's not just I'm going to go study history, but, but you know this. I mean, just, you know, your your friends in Charlotte or Atlanta, you know, it's like, yeah, now I realize, you know, or you watch these stars interviewed by Skip Gates and say, oh, <laughs> I never realized that, you know, my great great uncle was a white planter or whatever, you know, I mean, just getting into it. Is and 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 spreading that out, making it a broader understanding that we can all share, agree upon, discuss the way we do with most aspects of American history. Um, that's that that's going to happen. I I mean to to me the the field has gotten much too esoteric. You know, I mean you know there's too much jargon. There's too much, not talking, not writing books that are very accessible to, to general readers, um, and that, that, but that'll change. I think what's going to happen, I was thinking about this this morning before we started talking, that, I mean, for me, I've described the moment in the, you know, the coming of age in the civil rights movement. So people who were just four or five years older than me never quite got it. You know, they they'd spent that they just didn't quite get it. And then it was easy for my easier, much easier for my generation to get it and much more motivating. And I think we're at that kind of a moment now. I mean, I think the kind of careerism and esoteric language and all that stuff is reminds me of the 1950s. And I think the next and because. Because in the 60s the culture was in crisis. I mean it okay. certainly felt that way to all of us you know and to everybody on all sides. It seemed very divided and so on and so forth. And now we're in another one of those moments, you know and that creates a different set I mean either you decide, hey, I can't waste time being a historian. I've got to go out and fight for abortion rights or something else. Um, or you decide, hey, I I want to be a historian it's a powerful tool still and I need to I need to do it in a different way you know I, I need to I I'm not going to do it quite the way my elders did you know I'm going to use new tool I'm going to use podcasts I'm going to use you know computer maps I'm going to do new technologies, but I'm going to be a serious historian, you know, and I'm going to make sure that I do the work right, and that it reaches lots of people, you know, and, uh, and that, and that I do it with other, I mean, I've talked a lot about, about um, doing it together, you know, I mean, history in some ways is still a very solitary field where you go off and, and do your research and your writing it should be much more cooperative, collective. And even if we aren't collaborating on the same article, we should be supporting each other's work and criticizing it. You know, like, why are you doing that? Or have you looked at this, or think about it this other way? And that's, that's a movement. You know, I mean, there's movements that happen in the streets and there's movements that happen in, in the archives, you know, of, 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 of just lots and lots of people comparing notes and and pushing each other and and saying, you know, why, you know, why are you calling it a plantation? Why don't you call it a slave labor camp? You know, I mean, I'm not in favor of changing the names of everything. And, and, you know, I don't think that moves the ball forward too much you know, but I think we do have to think, you know, is, should we say enslaved more than we say slave? Yes, we should, you know, and, and, but, but it should be consensus, you know, we should be talking to each other about it. Um, and, uh, yeah,
1: yeah. And, and actually, to your point, I until you mentioned abortion rights, I didn't even think about the fact that when you, um, when you published your book, 50 years later, now abortion rights that had you had gotten by the or that, that women had had, had, had uh, via the Supreme Court. And now, 50 years later, you know.
0: And, and you know from watching the talking heads on television stuff that there are lots, I, this is a generalization, but lots of, of sharp white women feeling surprised like, wait a minute, I thought we. Cross that bridge mm-hmm. and lots of sharp black women saying wait a minute you don't understand history you know it's not a straight line you know you have to keep fighting for whatever you're gonna get i learned that from my grandmother you know and and why are you so surprised that that the pendulum swings back the other way you know we we've black history teaches you that early on you know and yeah. so we we shouldn't be surprised but we need to be as as motivated in our work as as our forebears were in, in those other tough times, you know, whether it's the divided 60s or the divided 1850s, or, you know, I mean, the best comparison for me probably with this uh with the current Supreme Court is going back to to the Dred Scott case, you know, I mean where you have a court is sort of defying public opinion and 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 defying law and defying biblical teachings and everything else, you know, and just saying you know, these these people can never be citizens, you know. Uh, and on the one hand, they're reflective of a certain American view, but on the other hand, they're way out of step and very regressive, and they're trying to hold the society back. And what's the society going to do about it, you know, and... Uh, and we're at that kind of a moment, you know, just like the formation of the Republican Party in the 1850s, where you have very disparate people who've been off, you know, fighting for prohibition or fighting for abolition or fight. You know, they all have their causes and then coming together and saying, no, you know, we've got to we need to form a new party. We need to have, you know, we need to address this issue head on. Um, and and we're we're at another one of those points. You know, I hope it's not the last
1: to that. And so, y'all, we have had the amazing opportunity to, to listen to Dr. Peter Wood, author of this amazing book, Black Majority. And, Peter, it has been a pleasure and an honor to talk to you today on uh, New Books in African-American Studies to commemorate, um, we'll say, 50 years since uh, you finished your dissertation, which I'm looking forward to hopefully for myself. Well, my dissertation is, is, is finished hopefully next year. That I can look back 50 years with another person as well. So uh, I, I really appreciate you, my friend.
0: Thank you. I, I appreciate you. And I, it's, it's great that you're doing this. It's, it's wonderful to, to talk. I hope we can do it some more.
1: Oh, yes, we will. And so, y'all, this is Adam McNeil from New Books in African-American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you enjoy this conversation and want more, please, please, please subscribe. And along with that, rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. So that we can know how we're doing, and also maybe some conversations that you might want us to have. Uh, there are many other anniversaries coming up, and so we need to get more people like Peter on the to, con- to to converse with our hosts as well, folks. So uh, once again, Adam McNeil from New Books in African American Studies. Until next time, y'all. Over and.